You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio with Marie here on Counterculture. It is now time for Media Matters. And joining me, as always, is Marty Gibson. How are you, Marty? I'm awesome, thank you, Marie. Yes, good. Busy week. It has been a busy week, and it's been a busy week in politics. Well, yes, we're starting to get to the pointy end. So the defection with Mika Whaitere, which of course is huge news because I live in the Ikaroa Fitti electorate, and she is a uh, Hastings girl, so they had the big announcement here last week. Uh, so Mika is jumping ship. Walker. I know lots of people have covered why she's doing that and what was her reasoning, and there was lots of fluffy language around how she was protecting her mana and coming home. I have to admit, for me, I would have loved to have been the fly on the wall when Labour dispatched the ex-girlfriend for her to go down and try and talk her out of it. I thought that was an interesting move. The unity among Maori politicians is not widely appreciated. They're not as tribal politically as as they like to present themselves for the theatre of it. I was just re-looking at some papers, and there was a... uh, an interview on Monday, April 10th, uh, New Zealand Herald w- with Willie Jackson. One of the things he said was, it's a different thing in the Māori world. You know, we are all friends and whānau. We give each other a crack and then we have a kai together and plan the next hui together. And this was something that Trevor Loudon said in his interview with Rodney Hyde, which is, I still think, one of the best interviews that, that's been on this platform, um, where he said, you know, it was surprising how how many of of these people who were planted in different political systems were on board with putting the mayo into Māori. Um, The other thing he said is, uh, whether we like it or not, there is a conservative Māori vote. They don't like it. No. And that's the one thing that never gets talked about. It is a conundrum. Where does a conservative Māori voter go? Well, where does a Māori politician go once they get into the system? And they work out that it's all bullshit. And, and and all the things that everyone's saying they want to do is just window dressing. I've got a theory about, uh, about this. Women thought that the Rockefellers and the CIA were helping to uplift them when they funded feminism. But what they were actually funding was division and demoralization of their most likely opponents. And I think a lot of this division that we're getting through this driving of these radical race, racist agendas, uh, they're not to uplift Māori, but to demoralise New Zealanders and delegitimise their being here with all this talk about colonisation. And I hope that Māori wake up to it, get off the reservation before they end up as Ngāti Uyghur, before they find out that these Pākehā they've been living alongside for 180 years, who actually get on all right with, and they've got whānau, whakapapa links with, maybe we should have just gotten together and uh, done a bit of know-your-enemy stuff. Mm. Shane Jones had a really interesting interview with Paul Brennan uh, recently, so I do suggest people, if they haven't heard that, look it up. And there was a lot about Shane that I 
didn't know. He's a likable rogue. He really Mm. is. One of the things that he said that stuck with me in that interview is similar to what you're saying in the sense that as Māori, it's time for them to put the K back into iwi. Mm. As you said, there are strong whakapapa links. I mean, my family is a classic example of that on both sides. We see ourselves as New Zealanders as Kiwis first uh, that happen to have Māori ancestry and Irish ancestry and German ancestry and all of these things. Whereas that's where the identity politics that come into play. Whereas the Maoism, the Mao that's in Māori is saying to them, no, you must, your identity is what defines you. And that takes strips away that individualism. So where, if you are a conservative Māori, who you are that single sovereign individual on the land, where do you go politically? It's uh, fairly slim pickings now. I mean, now that Mecca has jumped ship across to the Māori Party, which for me has got Tamahiri's tendrils all over it, was this a let's bring Mecca over uh, with a strong likelihood or push that we believe that she's going to retain that seat, which will give us more power and influence in terms of bods on the ground, we then put ourselves in that kingmaker position come the election and we can now start pushing through our gender particularly around like welfare i mean if you've seen some of this stuff in welfare reform to quote daryl kerrigan from the castle the dreaming i don't know how on earth they believe they're going to have that funded or paid for And you're right as you said there's a really tight connection willie jackson is very honest when he says there's a tight connection amongst Māori politicians. I mean, from what I understand, he's pretty tight with William Ormsby, who's the husband of uh, Nanaia Mahuta. Husband and cousin. Yeah, well, yes, exactly. I don't know what's going to go on. It's certainly interesting. I think if you're not across Māori politics, I think you need to be aware of this because this potentially could be the thing that upsets the apple cart because it is... I think that's what Tamahiri is looking at doing. I think he's looking at exerting even more power, making sure this co-governance gets across the line, and this is how he's doing it. And I think there could be more defections. Yeah, I mean, getting back to that very telling April 10th article, what he says uh, about the difference between Labour and the Māori Party is they always go for perfection. I go for what's possible. I don't need Māori Party MPs to show me the way in terms of what's right. And that's the same with the Green Party, you know, and you could argue it's the same with National Act as well. You know, they want to get into a coalition so they can twist their hair into pigtails and go, well, you know, it's not us. They made us do it, you know, when it's what they want to do all the time, but they need to get those centre voters. It's cynical and deceptive and it's not healthy for New Zealand's political scene. No, it certainly isn't. They also play on the assumption that if you're a Māori voter, that you will only vote in one political direction. And that, as we both know, is not true. No. And, you know, I'm surprised, again, that National don't pull out some of those quotes from that golden age of um, Māori politicians, Apirana Ngāta, Buck. You know, they were adamant that uh, welfare was going to poison Māori. I've got a theory about socialism when you realise it's time to get off your ass and exercise because things have gone a little bit too far and you start and it's horrible and you get a little voice in your head that says, oh, why do we have to do this? Oh, you know, I'm being judged by other people. That's not fair. That 
pathetic, whiny little voice that wants to keep you down and stop you making progress, unfortunately, has political representation in socialism. That's what it is. It's the voice of making excuses and justifying poor performance and inaction and victimization. You getting a better share of things mm. with no effort. The weak aspect of Maori eats that up, and really they're much better off with a stronger, let's get moving message that's more empowering and, and also pulls them together. So, as I often say, Pākehā and Maori can be more than the sum of our parts rather than at war with each other. It will be really interesting to see where things go. I, I think that there could be more defections. I don't know what's going to happen with Dr. Elizabeth Kitty. Is she up for grabs for the Māori Party? I mean, she's certainly in the radical element within the Greens, so she may find herself a nice little cosy home across there. I don't know what gravitas she would pull across to the Māori Party. I mean, the one thing I would give John Tamahiri, he is a political animal. He knows how the game is played. And he will play it. Uh, I don't know whether it's been announced, but I did read somewhere. I think he was lining up uh, people like Butterbean, Dave Latelli to run in, in Auckland. So I don't oh. know whether that's come off. It will be very, very interesting. And then we go from that, from the ridiculous to the sublime. Did you see the most ridiculous puff piece? What are we talking here? Which one? Michael Wood. Yeah, I know. Oh. <laughs> narrow it down, Marie. Narrow it down. Uh, the Michael, Michael Wood, Wood piece. You yeah. know, do you find reading the paper, it's it's kind of high-fibre reading, isn't it? You've got to really chew a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of nutritional content, and it gives you the shits if you get too much of it. That Michael yeah. Wood, I mean, I was reading it. I was trying to get some nutrition out of it. I was it's trying to get one probing question or and of course you read it all in his voice you know it's all his quotes <laughs> for those who haven't read it and believe me you're not missing anything uh the man who wants to fix the auckland disease hmm, interesting imagery the auckland disease minister for auckland michael wood opens up to simon wilson about the government's commitments to the city now i love the little quote that they popped out next to his rather large, large picture in the middle of the road it says my job is to be the glue and the collaborator that gets people in the room to make progress really michael oh okay so obviously no rivers of filth in auckland then yeah i was like you i thought okay because he's one of these labor ministers of everything and we all know that there are some deep issues in Auckland. The most interesting thing about the entire piece was on transport, which, as we know, if you've spent any time living in Auckland, is an arsake. The most substantive thing about the entire piece was around uh, bus drivers saying the trouble is despite funding package bus services haven't been expanded. The acute shortage of drivers and COVID-related cancellations have reduced their scope was the government too slow to recognise the problem? Wood said they're making progress and bus patronage in Auckland is now up to 85% of pre-COVID levels, uh, but well short of Wellington at 100%. Lo and behold, Wood said, you can do that for 15 years, but drivers are treated like rubbish and they leave the industry. We're fixing that. We're putting 60 million in the budget last year and we're now flowing that through to bus drivers in Auckland and around the country. The shortfall of more than 500 drivers has now shrunk to 350 and is on track to fall much further as new drivers finish their training. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, buses here in Papamoa and uh, most of them could be replaced by an eight-seater minivan for, for how many people you see in them. Mm. 
I worked over uh, the other side of town for a while and it took me um, half an hour to drive there. I thought maybe I should catch the bus. I, I did the research and it, did, it would take three hours. Well, I thought the most interesting thing was and it went totally unchallenged. We said, Simon Wilson said, no other part of New Zealand features the extremes of inequity. Is that word equity? Find in Auckland, though, because it's so big and sprawling, it's quite easy not to see the contrasts up close. Does the minister for Auckland think the government is doing enough to help Aucklanders who get left behind or at risk of it? Uh, he said, are we there yet? No, but there is real progress. He talked about reductions in child poverty. Across all of the measures that we have and higher benefit levels and indexed minimum wage, a massively expanded social housing program. But no Do you substantive really believe data. That child poverty is has uh, gone back un, uh, according to all measures. Maybe there's the weasel words of across all the measures we have. In that, what they're doing is they're chucking a lot of money at welfare. I talked to a guy yesterday who, after four years of of not claiming the benefits, being a sole parent, not working. I think he's helped out by his parents. Can stay in a house they've got. He went and saw um, the Ministry of Social Welfare, I think at the start of the year, and you know looked at getting some benefits. He went back and said five months later or whatever it is, and said, you know, I'd like to restart that process. They didn't look for any proof of his rent, of his income, bank statements, and they backpaid him $11,000 from when he first inquired about it. Well, a lot of people who are living in poverty aren't necessarily in poverty because of a lack of money. And some some people, if you give them money, they'll kill themselves. Mm. Especially if you give them eleven grand at a at a big bunch. And it's also too the the use of the word poverty because it's not poverty in a third world standard. I think, as Jacinda once said, no, we're referring to relative poverty. Yeah, equity. They want equity. Mm. That goes right through the teaching. Goes back to that uh, teachers' issue, trying to give extra teaching to kids who are showing talent. And and the deputy principal said, their cup is full. You know, all the maths. You know, kind of bring bringing kids who are good at maths together with kids who aren't, in the hope that equity. Such a rotten way of looking at the world. No, it certainly is. Claire Trevitt. In the Weekend Herald, she did her piece, Winter's the Biggest Threat to Hipkins' Honeymoon, uh, Health and Economic Storms Ahead Capable of Casting a Chill on Labour's Election Hopes. Last winter did not con- coincide with high inflation, high interest rates or expected recession, nor did it have the election at its end. These were on the horizon and they're now all here. This year's winter plan includes measures such as virtual consultations and allowing GPs to refer patients to some specialists, rather than than hospitals having to do so uh, in discussing with the pressures of the health system, its success is heavily reliant on people helping themselves, such as by getting vaccinated for both flu and the new bivalent COVID-19 vaccine. That'll, that'll be the answer, won't it? So I'm just going to unpack that for two reasons, because as you know, that this health stuff is the hobby horse of mine. This year's winter plan includes measures such as virtual consultations. Well, where have we had that before? Mm. in lockdowns. I can't say that the health system was improved by this. And then allowing GPs to refer patients to some specialists rather than a hospital having to do so. Now, I'm a bit perplexed because I understand how the referral system works. And generally, a GP will refer a patient into a department 
for specialist consultation and they get an appointment with a specialist is what happens in the public system. So, and instead, instead of the hospital having to do so, well, I think what this is meaning, that they're going to move first, first specialist assessments back out into the private sector and they're going to contract that out. It's the only thing it can mean, surely. Well, I, I was the same as you. I thought GPs could refer yeah. to specialists. Um, I'm picking that that's what's going to happen. And this happens every single election cycle, particularly with the Labour government, is a massive dollop of money gets pumped into the um, hospital system within six months out from the election. And they do it to try and push waiting lists down, get surgical numbers up. They spray and pray money into the private sector to try and get as many patients pushed through so then they can cook the books to have it look good leading into the election. So this is obviously what this is, is to pump money into FSAs. So then when they can say, yes, we've, we've managed to get through X number of people into first specialist assessments which will lead to getting to the waiting list and then obviously the trope of but people can help themselves uh, by getting the both the flu and the bivalent COVID-19 vaccine I think the uptake for that has been really poor and they did address it in the next paragraph the government has provided the means for that but there's also concerns vaccine fatigue or complacency has set in because too many people have had COVID-19 and are not necessarily finding it severe. Shocker. Natural immunity, Marty. You can't let that get in the way of a good story, can you? Yeah, and you can't uh, focus on uh, helping people with their natural immunity because then they'd be less reliant on government, and that's not the game. It'd be good to hear a lot more from the Auditor General about the spray and pray stuff, wouldn't it? You know, because it's so cynical and it's so transparently not good for the country. And, you know, we we were talking about what would we do uh, if we were Chris Bishop running Nationals campaign. And I thought, you know, we, we probably just sort of painted ourselves into a corner where we where we asked ourselves a question and, and hadn't necessarily um, formulated a, a logical uh, ordered answer. But what um, Nationals should do is they should talk about transferring funding from ministry policy wonks and make work jobs into frontline services. And they should do it by saying, say, uh, to the Ministry of Education, you justify the spending in the light that you're taking this money away from remedial reading programs or improvements to uh teacher numbers or let's improve the education system away from 50% of kids who go through it can't read in an enumerate. And that way, as we said, that kindness monopoly that the Labour Party have inexplicably been allowed to carry on with. Yeah, there's lots of uh, let's rob Peter to pay Paul. We hear all about paying Paul, but we never hear where we've robbed Peter. Well, it's not even robbing Peter. It's because, as I always say, you know, you get Luxon saying this is taxpayer money. It's not taxpayer money. It's money of our children, you know, that, that are going to have to pay back loans. It's borrowed money. It's putting, you know, like any good student politician, they've been given a credit card and surprise, surprise, they're not using it uh, responsibly. Speaking of people that understand all about money flowing into government, you had uh, picked up the piece with Stephen Joyce this weekend. You know, I always enjoy his take on things because he's 
He's so affable. He's basically did a contrast between where this government is now and where the Clark government was when they lost the election to National. And, you know, his summary is one that, you know, you, you don't hear enough of in the media. The economy has become, there is every chance it is already in recession ahead of a predicted slowdown in the rest of the world. The Reserve Bank is continuing to lift interest rates in an attempt to cut off the persistent inflation. The balance of payments is blown out to record levels, a sure sign the country is living beyond its means. The government has lifted its spending dramatically over recent years, but it doesn't seem to be improving public services. The public are getting restless after as their after-tax incomes are squeezed. The ratings agencies are just starting to get nervous. So he's saying Labour got voted out of office last time. Inflation wasn't as high as it is now. The balance of payments deficit, while it had blown right out, was not as big as, big as, it, as it is now. Just like Robertson, Cullen hated reducing taxation. So, yeah, he's sort of saying it, grew, it took Cullen nine years to grow government expenditure at the same rate Grant Robertson has managed in six. And then he talks about some of the positives around Cullen's conservative financial stewardship that uh, surprise, surprise, a Marxist student politician who's never had a uh, real job that didn't involve political brown nosing. It's the thing, the excuses that will get thrown. There will be, oh, we've had these disasters, that we have had, there's been COVID, you know, there's always a reason. The fact that the media allows them to keep saying it was COVID rather than it was the government's response to COVID. You've got to sympathise with them. They were probably uh, pretty scared if they didn't know about it. One of the things Stephen Joyce will often do in many of his pieces is he also offers a view for the future. Has he given us any indications of what he can see could or should happen? Well, yeah. He, You think, is he talking to the National Party still? Because he basically offers them up an election campaign plan. And that's the other thing I like about Stephen Joyce. He was always, well, you know, I would have liked to have had a crack at being Prime Minister, but they didn't want me and I'm not about to get back into politics. He said, uh, what does the government need to do in its budget in just 12 days' time to avoid meeting the fate of its 2008 forerunner? To my mind, there are about five things. And I just, you know, meet the recovery needs of the folks in Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Coromandel and Auckland. Second was it must find a way to improve basic services like health, education, now transport without feeding inflation. Uh, it will need to find a way to ease inflationary pressures on the squeezed middle. Uh, it will need to have a real plan for economic growth. And last, the budget will need to show a plan not just to come into balance, but actually reduce government debt. I mean, there's National's election plan right there. You know, if they were on that, they'd be ahead in the polls. So he's sort of saying, well, you know, Grant Robertson will have to stop defending all his previous actions if this budget is to be the one New Zealand needs. Unfortunately, there is something about the history of, of Labour governments spending buckets of money and ignoring the consequences, which doesn't provide reassurance. Uh, will this one go down like the last one or wake up in time? He knows. He knows yeah. they're not... Uh, yeah, so, he does know. Yeah. And, you know, what was nice about that plan, what was it, a five-point plan, not one hint of diversion, equity or, or inclusion in that plan whatsoever. Ah. It was sticking to your knitting kind of stuff. And and at the end of the day, we all want to know that our health is taken care of and if we need that ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, it is there. We want to know that our children are going to be well educated uh, and we want to make sure that 
as a nation, we're healthy economically to be able to offer basic services when required. And actually, as he said, deal with those uh, disaster relief areas. I mean, here in Hawke's Bay, there were several pieces. Again, there was a review piece around some of the areas that have been missed here in the Bay. Mm. Really frustrating. Long-term compassion. You know, that, that, that should be the National Party's brand. Or even medium-term compassion. Well, we touched there on health before and a story that both you and I pulled out, uh, 94 hours in A&E. I think it was the lead story in the Herald. Yeah, the Weekend Herald. A mental health patient in Auckland City Hospital was made to wait 94 hours in an emergency department because there were no beds available in the psychiatric unit, according, according to a damning internal email obtained by the Weekend Herald. Anecdotally, it may be the longest ever stay for a mental health patient in New Zealand ED, the doctor said. Two other acutely unwell patients were marooned in ED the same, at the same time. They waited 58 and 65 hours to be admitted to Te Whete Tawera, a 58-bed inpatient psychiatric facility, the email said. So this, to me, is twofold. This shows you the absolute crumbling nature of our EDs literally the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff but also too it goes to highlight um that where was all this money that this government was supposed to be spending on improving the number of beds in mental health mm. yeah how much was it was it 500 million they're saying here staffing shortages have become so critical in some places that wards were struggling to deliver an adequate level of care avoiding harmful mistakes and protect staff from patients who are abusive and violent Extraordinary delays for these patients happened soon after Auckland City's hospital ED became overcrowded in March, that some people were moved into the public space designated as an overflow area, mass casualty events, and several ambulances were diverted to another hospital. Even goes without talking about the ramping that goes on at these hospitals as well. What's ramping? So ramping is when an ambulance arrives with a patient on board, but it's so full in ED and there's no staff available to even take that patient in for triage that they will not accept the patient into ED and the paramedics have to hold on to that patient in ambulance until they can be released inside wow. at ED. So it would be a lonely have, feeling, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I know that um, that has been leading to some of the delays for people with call-outs. So then I know Waikato have been hit with us pretty intensively and you could have eight ambulances ramped at ED waiting to offload patients who are in the ED saying, no, we can't take them. And then you've got more emergency call-outs and you've got no ambulances for call-out because they've still got patients on board. Again, you know, go through the Ministry of Health's expenditure and just say, okay, do we sell ramping or do we have this cultural safety department that's sucking 20 million bucks a year or whatever? You can hear the bureaucracy defending itself rather than figuring out how to solve the problem. Tetoka to my Auckland, which replaced the Auckland District Health Board last year, how much did that cost? How much did that rebrand cost? Uh, would not comment on specifics because of privacy considerations, but it said the staff member who was assaulted was not injured and had been offered support. It did not accept that there had been a breach of legislation. Thank goodness for the PR ladies. You could sheet this back to the closure of, of uh, mental hospitals in the early 90s. I remember I didn't get into the halls of residence when 
I first uh, turned up at Waikato University uh, around 1991, or I think it was 91 or 90. My mother found me a, uh, a hostel which was nearby and quite cheap. And uh, so I was 17 and moved into this, and it turned out that it was where all the Tokunui patients had gone. Oh, you would have fit right in, doll. Oh, yeah, well, it certainly, yeah, it was, it was entertaining. And it, it gave me a, uh, a lifelong interest in mental health issues. Well, it says at the end of this article, this week, Viral announced 24 initiatives intended to relieve demand on hospitals this winter when demand is expected to surge again. Well, I think it's already there. I think it's, it's going to get worse than where it's at at the moment, especially if all of those people do not go out and get their COVID boosters and um, flu shots. She says with great cynicism, uh, frontline mm. staff at Auckland City Hospital say they need more psychiatric beds, more psychiatrists and mental health nurses and better physical facilities for mental health patients in ED, including a dedicated behavioural health assessment unit. It provides more suitable space for the distressed people to wait in. Now, I know of two psychiatrists that are not currently working in the system because of the you-know-what. I mean, I have sympathy for the patients that need the help. I have no sympathy whatsoever for ministers like Viral, who are saying, this is what we're going to do, and also too, for senior people in hospitals that are saying, this is what we need, this is what we need, but they yet will not let back staff who have been shut out of the system because of policy. And the longer it goes on, they are not going to get those staff back. Those staff are redeploying and they know they're not welcome. So they're not going to, to come back. I know they'll turn around and they'll say, oh, but it's only a very small percentage. Any percentage of the deficit that we have right now surely is going to make a positive difference, but it is not. Yeah, that, that, that would open a whole can of worms from that they don't want to open. But all of those issues, if you wanted to get real bang for your buck in health spending, you'd have a um, system where people could present for drug and alcohol treatment and be admitted straight away. Just the way, the way the whole cycle of motivation works, where you've got a point where you realize, hey, I'm wrecking my life. There should be staff going into police holding cells and saying, well, how are you feeling now? Do you want to go into treatment? And they should be able to say yes and go for a 12-week treatment plan. And if you take those, particularly now that um, methamphetamine's just tearing through communities, you know, you can treat them reasonably effectively just, just by tranquilizing them a little bit and taking them away from temptation till they can get some insight. This is even without us going into the therapeutic amendments bill. I mean, if that absolute cluster, you know, gets passed, then the measures for those that do take care of themselves and preventative health are going to be legislated and made vastly more difficult. So all you're going to be doing is putting vastly more pressure downstream. It's mm. the biggest belief. It really does. I mean, the, belief. the black pill with all of this is making the move from thinking, you know, I used to often say when people would say, oh, God, these guys are just um, just dumb and doing a terrible job. You know, talking about Ardern's government, you haven't heard it so much uh, with Hipkins. My rejoinder was often, yeah, what if they're not as dumb as you think and they're doing a really good job? It's just you don't know what the job is or who they're working for. What have we got next? Well, we've covered uh, politics. We've covered health. It's now time to dive into education. Librarians, teachers fear bitter cultural wars in New Zealand. Sunday Star Times, 
this piece is obviously designed to be pushed out as a supportive piece to the release of the transgressive transitions disinformation project report that came out on last week from our friends at the disinformation project it is a report that the disinformation project has put out citing a raise in transphobic rhetoric and hate post the Posey Parker visit to Auckland at the end of March. So they have gone through and they are tracking this sort of language. And in this piece, it uh, those at the front line of teaching our nation's children are finding themselves at the forefront of conflict over ideas as parents target books and topics they don't like. Now, I've just spoken to Helen Houghton about this. Now, she's a former school teacher. She has left the teaching profession to go into politics with the new Conservative Party to actually fight stuff that's going on in schools. And what is really intriguing is that what has happened since COVID and what has happened, I believe, since a lot of parents have seen what was going on in their kids' schools because the kids were learning at home, is all of a sudden there has been a realisation of what teaching is happening that we are completely unaware of. It starts off with a story about our kids arguing and a teacher intervening, they were arguing over whether or not two um, people of the same sex could get married. And the teacher said, well, yes, in this country, that's law that they can. They said that I was forcing my views on the children. They don't want me to talk about or refer to gayness in any form and at any point. They wanted that disgusting flag on the wall to be taken down, Harriet said. It was a rainbow pride flag that had been on Harriet's classroom wall for years without complaint. I mean, I've looked at lots of feeds where the supposed hate lies, and I find it really, really difficult to find deep and damning. I, I had a look too. It was quite, I mean, you know, it was quite you interesting. Have... I wouldn't have known about these people. They, they really want to be famous, is what I got from looking at their Facebook feeds. There's a yeah. lot of re reference to drugs. There was a bit of nudity, and it was really, they wanted. They wanted to be famous. That was uh, the impression I, I got from it. I really struggled to see any um, anything but yes, go girl support. I mean, as you know, hyperbolic language is a real bugbear with me. And the report from the Disinformation Project has an entire segment about the trans genocide. Yeah. I still do not know where these bodies are piling up. Well, you know, the other thing is the, these are the same people who are saying uh, whiteness must be eliminated. So who's into genocide, really? Part of the reason I think that this piece has gone out is that there has been a pushback, and I talked about this with Helen. There has been a pushback around two aspects. One is Pride Week coming up in June. But also, too, uh, this coming Friday is uh, Pink Shirt Day in schools. Now, Pink Shirt Day used to be something fairly innocuous around the prevention of bullying in schools. And I discussed this with Helen. What it has now morphed into is that actually, really, it's about bullying specifically with the alphabet and rainbow communities, which actually is not the message we want to send to children. We want to send to children that bullying isn't okay, that sort of antisocial behaviour amongst your friends isn't on. The poster child for this is our little friend Chanel Lal. Mm. See, a week goes by without me not talking about Chanel. These are some of the 
texts, and I am going to have to slightly paraphrase them because they're not suitable for broadcast, that um, tweets, I must say, that our friend Chanel has been known to pop out over the last little bit. I'm happy to be known as the fag that tore the fabric of society apart and destroyed the heterosexual dream. Thanks, Chanel. Uh, another one, F you and F your father. This Pakia man is an effing see you next Tuesday. Mm. Lovely. Go F yourself, you stupid a-hole. New Zealand is effed. And this is this is the person New that they have here. fronting the pink shirt campaign. Mm. Well, you know, again, you gotta be careful that we're all on the same page with this. Don't forget that Marxist symbol of the up upward facing fist. You're going to that Kantian uh, thing of uh, don't do anything lest you uh, could. It could be a universal law. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, kind of thing. But they believe that violence is okay if it's against someone who's higher up on the power pole. They, they believe the means justify the ends with that stuff. So it's completely consistent with that philosophy. What I see in this piece is parents are now starting to push back. They're not pushing back according to this article. Public and school libraries are not required to keep a record of the number or type of book challenges they receive. But Lahat said she hasn't yet noticed any significant increase. We're at the be prepared stage, she said. So this whole article, it's like a climate change article. Mm. It's based on a uh, on a projection of what might happen. Yes, yes. And it's also a way to solidify the report into the wider sphere. Because, of course, you couldn't go by without Kate Hanna having a quote in here. Anti-transgender rhetoric has usurped COVID-19 as the new unifying issue for the Kiwi disinformation community. Kiwi disinformation community. Now, that report says that 1.8 million New Zealanders have concerning uh, posting or language. If you're wondering what the size of this disinformation community is, it's 1.8 million Kiwis. Who well, don't that's a third of Kiwis. Their... That, that's, that's quite a sizable chunk. Yeah, who, who don't buy into Kate Hanna's formation of her identity using feminism, post-colonialism and Marxism. Well, she's a communist. She's an avowed communist. I mean, it's on the record she's a communist. Ah, yeah, that's that's the problem. They're serious about this stuff and New Zealanders need to get with the program. So she says here, everyone, every man and his dog is shifting from being motivated by anti-vaccine and anti-mandate issues to anti-trans issues, she said. <gasps> every man and his dog? Kate, it's not just hate, but actual physical disgust. If you other somebody, you dehumanize them. You make them like an insect or an animal, something you're repelled by. It makes it easier to deny their existence. It's terrifying. That, to me, unmasked everything. Well, have you had any experience of being othered? Well, wow. I seem to remember the same people doing that to uh, anyone who disagreed with the old safe and effective. This is why I highlighted this, is that as far as I'm concerned, that 1.8 million people that could constitute the Kiwi disinformation community have been othered in one form or another for the last three years. The projection is strong with these ones. 
it's similar to Māori leaders talking about the racism of New Zealanders. If most New Zealanders think about what should happen to the country, it's uh, what should happen for everyone. They're not particularly fixated on race. If, if there's poverty, we should address it. If there's failure in education, we should address it. If someone's fixated on race, everyone looks racist to them because that's the way they think. Tabby Beasley, Managing Director of the Queer Youth Advocacy Group, Inside Out. Now, Inside Out have been subcontracted in one form or another to actually go in and do a lot of this intersectional education in schools. So it's not necessarily been done by teachers. A lot of teachers are actually really uncomfortable to do it. So they bring these groups in, and Pride Week is often when this happens. They're saying that teaching children inappropriate things, that we're going into classrooms and grooming children, really awful stuff. We're suggesting things like having a rainbow non-uniform day or doing some baking. It's up to schools what it looks like. Now, Helen presented evidence in the previous interview that no, it, that may be, it may be like that in some schools, but in other schools, it is literally having coming out celebrations at school assembly. And the thing that bothers me about Pride Week is that if you're a member of the rainbow community within a school, you shouldn't have to have a week to celebrate who you are, you should be able to celebrate your own self every single day. Be part of a wider school community where your sexuality is just part of who you are, as if you were to have brown eyes or black hair. You know, it, creating it into this separate labels that you can then apply all these other, uh, would you like fries with that victimization and a press status labels onto it is, which of course, as we know, fits into the neo-Marxist canon, that's not good for our kids. Especially when it's taken alongside being able to commence transitioning, which involves giving uh, puberty-blocking hormones, even arranging march towards double mastectomies and chemical castration. And the other law, which means that if anyone counsels a student who maybe isn't comfortable about feelings towards the opposite sex, that's now illegal with the anti-conversion laws. So yeah. you, you, no one who works in counselling is going to be comfortable stepping into that arena. And it's the Gillick principle, isn't it? You know, I didn't, I was completely unaware of this until the vaccination campaign started. And I they're mean, now taking that exact same principle with gender identity and working kids through social transition and, and the like. And it is dependent on whether or not that there are key people in that school. So if you are concerned as a parent, I think it means that you need to make sure that you're aware of what's going on. I think you need to make sure you've got your eyes wide open of what's happening. And I I have to admit that woke me up big time when I heard about that principle. I was like, wow, I had no idea that that was the case. And I don't know about you, Marty, but even in my 50s, I struggle to make really good positive decisions. How on earth can they expect a 12-year-old to make such life-altering decisions without at least counsel with their parents? I, I don't want to be just talking about what's going on and fostering any sense of helplessness. I mean, we do still have school boards. Maybe it's time we got on school boards. Maybe it's time we, we went through and said, well, what's your pedagogical philosophy here? If it is to form equity by squashing down kids who are talented uh, for equity purposes, maybe it's time for us to say, hey, look, you know, that's uh, not what we want. You know, all children have all different talents and we want them celebrated and helped along. Mm, exactly. Let's round things off with a bit of media, eh? Yes. 
there's two big puff pieces, one for Duncan Garner and one for his acolyte, uh, Paddy Gower. And it's sort of both of them, you get the feeling, you get the feeling that they've got the hangover. You know, they've, they've been in um, high-paid roles where they've had to maybe not be out-and-out out willfully deceptive, but they've been driving the agenda on behalf of other people, and it's not necessarily good for ki- Kiwis. They've been leaving out some important factors, and now they're a little bit poor me. When Paddy Gower stopped boozing, as someone who's stopped boozing himself for a couple of years, I said he's not going to be able to keep doing the news the way he is, calling it now. You know, he's out of there. Because in order to um, to do that, you've got to anesthetize part of yourself. His quote here, with this self-reflection and his emergence into broader frontline general reporting and documentaries, meeting real New Zealanders means, he says, that he's approaching the new role with maturity. Parliament is a ruthless place. I really have learned over the last few years that I'm not like that. And I function better when I'm more empathetic and caring, not just on TV, but just in general, I've been lucky that I've been able to bring my personality out and be more myself. We're going to see more refugees from this mm. system because the revolution always eats its own. And of course, with the Duncan Garner, he's going to be doing his own podcast. Now, what I was intrigued with the Garner piece, having read that with this new podcast, is is Media Works going to allow Duncan Garner to truly say what he wants to say? I wouldn't mind checking it out if Duncan Garner is able to do a Leighton Smith right. and interview who he wants, explore avenues, even if they go against current political or um, ideological orthodoxies, and actually just go for a wander down a path and just see where it takes you. I will be intrigued to see whether or not A, Garner has the balls to do it, and B, whether or not MediaWorks allows that to happen. Now, to be fair, I didn't listen to him on Today FM, but I did watch, when I was still watching Legacy Television, I did enjoy him on AM. He worked really, really hard at trying to sort of trod the centre to pathway. And you could see that there were times that he wanted to dive in and dig into something a little bit deeper, but the reins were on and he was being held back. By Overton's window. By what are you held, allowed yes. to talk about? And there's yes. a problem that you have when you start looking beyond the media, that the more you know, the crazy you appear. And uh, that's what they're going to butt up against. And again, we've got this thing where we're, we've been conditioned to think people are all the same, but we're not all the same. There's a fairly, as, as we've alluded to before, there's a fairly stable uh, proportions of people who are able to resist authority and think for themselves, and they're far smaller than we'd like to think. Mm. And the people who aren't able to resist authority and want to stay in the herd are enough to vote in governments. As we discussed last week, there's a process in place to ensure that people who can think for themselves don't wind up in charge of political movements, but are compliant middle managers. So that, that's that's the problem that you got. It is. Well, speaking of thinking for yourself, Shane Curry, the Weekend Herald, Stuff proposes up to 16 job cuts. Stuff is understood to be proposing to lay off half of a 32-strong team of production journalists. It's understood the company has proposed laying off 16 print producers, sub-editors in the old school parlance, following the introduction of a new IT system called Naviga. 
Over the coming months, Stuff is updating and replacing parts of its technology stack, including new tools for our editorial and commercial teams. These will further enhance our ability to publish engaging local and national journalism and provide smart advertising for our commercial partners. Some changes to external processes will result to the modern new media technology. We're consulting with staff on the impact of this technology on roles and responsibility. I think AI has come to stuff. Yeah, the sub-editing certainly gone downhill in all the major papers. You can You can spot errors if you've got an eye for it in a lot of the stories. Uh, so I'm sure AI could do it better because, you know, you look at those programs, they, they do a pretty good job. But that's okay because if we follow current trends, a lot of these people will wash out in the public sector. Mind you, those 16 stuff journalists will their new 16 PR policy wonks, isn't it, for the government, dare I say it. Speaking of, Andrea Vance. Andrea got, she had a thorn up her butt. Yes. It is the most interesting piece because someone has obviously annoyed the living bejesus out of her. Like, someone's really got up her nose. But she doesn't allude to who it is. So it says here, spin by stealth, these media apologists are merely reliving their old battles. Yeah. I hope we have more of these moments, like the talking to you, not politicians moments. I mean, this is what we've been talking about, right? It's it, The paper's just a... A little uh, little closed rank of PR people and government and academics. She um, says here, leopards don't change their spots, especially when they're political stripes. Hiring them as commentators robs the national discourse of people who can give us fresh new perspectives and comes at things from a different angle. Oh, Andrea, the irony. If you're wanting to find things from a different angle, sweetheart, it's not in legacy media. Yeah. I mean, that wagon got unhitched from the carriage a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I was looking at, they had a, uh, a list of what Duncan Garner had access to researchers and producers, etc., for his podcast. And I, I did a back of the cigarette packet um, calculation and, you know, if, if, say if, and, and yours will be twice as much as this, but, you know, say if I'm paid a minimum wage for, for doing this in terms of the time it takes to read the paper, and uh, buy the papers and etc. Not getting paid about ten thousand dollars a year, but my commitment to, I guess, making my voice heard and bringing some of the stuff into the public discourse is such that I think uh, it's something I'm happy to do. It's interesting because you're still seeing these people who are vastly overpaid for what they're doing, stigmatizing people like us as part of the disinformation, misinformation community. Um, yeah. I mean, we must be very motivated to deceive people if we're making those sort of sacrifices. The most important thing is that there are people like us that are prepared to make sacrifices because without making those sacrifices, nothing will ever change. A lot of these politicians, a lot of these media personalities and journalists, and we've allowed them in some ways to get away with so much for so long. And it's just got to stop. I think the groundswell of voices now, I mean, I was heartened when I read that report, that mm. the groundswell of those, according to that report, is 1.8 million voices. That's a lot of voices. Mm. Imagine if that number of voices actually unified, even a proportion of them. I always talked about the zipper consensus. You know, we sort of often argue about our differences. I think it's important in the national discourse that we start 
at the bottom, right? We don't put out cigarettes on children. Okay, everyone okay with that? And just move up from there. And by the time we've worked out what we've got in common, our differences pretty easy to live with and accommodate in terms of who we hang out with, really. You have got something more at your end, I do believe. I don't know if you've been following this at all, but um, there was a king crowned in the UK. Your king. Oh, is that all the, yes, the, the, that was all the hullabaloo. Yes, the coronation. <laughs> Did you sit up and watch the coronation? Not at all. No, me neither. There's a lot of journalists banging the Republican drum and activists, and it's always based on that there shouldn't be that sort of concentration of wealth. My distaste is more centred around Jimmy Seville, all the occult kind of trappings that go with that stuff. You know, the whole coronation happening six months, six weeks and six days after the Queen's death, all that sort of stuff. I, You know, it's an interesting coincidence. Just knowing that it's... It, if you follow it up, and this is what going down the rabbit hole really is, it's finding out, well, the same people who print the money, own the media, drive the agendas that appear in it, sell us zero carbon idea without ever really revealing that the carbon they want to reduce is us. I don't I don't see a problem for their being an aristocracy necessarily, because if you've got a, a wealth allowed to concentrate in areas, then you can have art and architecture that's uh, better than you have if everyone's just living in um, in ghettos and uh, shanty towns. I thought a lot of the resistance to it was misplaced. You had an opinion from a constitutional law expert who said, so why favour the Republic of New Zealand? First, nationhood. Our head of state should reflect who we are. We believe in egalitarianism and merit, not inherited wealth or titles. All Kiwis should be eligible to be head of state, not just people born into one English family. Hold on a second. Egalitarianism and merit. Did they say that with a straight face, like for realsies, not being sarcastic? Like the whole shift to become a whole new species doesn't happen when you've got uh, certain certain ancestry of whakapapa. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Alison Mao had a whine about it that, again, was very high fibre. I chewed and I chewed, but I, I couldn't get any, anything particular to pull out of that. Neil Oliver actually did his monologue immediately after the coronation, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I love his monologue each week. Yep. But he talked about the oath uh, taken at the coronation, which, of course, its foundation is based in common law, and actually unpicked that oath and the gravitas of the oath taken. And I think he was doing it in order to highlight that if King Charles were to sincerely follow that oath, very much along the lines that his mother did, then actually the value of a constitutional monarchy is really important because it actually, as monarch, you are actually completely answerable and a servant to the common people. So whether or not this happens, uh, because we do know he is rather fond of wee trips to Davos, will be yet to be seen. But I thought that was a really interesting take. Stephen Fry also said a few years back, I think in an interview with Jordan Peterson it was, and they were talking about republicanism versus monarchy. Fry's point was that the thing with the monarchy, there's a bigger fish that sits over and above those elected officials that sit at Westminster or to another effect here in New Zealand. 
Yeah, there is always another layer there. And I have to admit, it saddens me that we've been unhitched from the Privy Council as, mm. as a Commonwealth country. And it does concern me. If we become a republic, imagine if we'd had President Ardern. Yeah. I'm pleased you, you brought up Neil, Neil Oliver because that, that's something I was thinking because I've obviously consume a lot more than mainstream media and it's consistently far higher in quality. Yeah, Neil Oliver's points were extremely well made around sovereignty and that the, we've all got our own sovereignty and they've slipped in the sovereign government when it doesn't belong there according to natural law. And yeah, I mean, the middle management thing, Jimmy Seville, you know, they're all kind of linked and that, you know, Belgium was famous for this. And of course, they had their great Jimmy Seville was Marc Dutroux. And it's generally acknowledged in Belgium that if you get into a position of power, normally there's something reprehensible that's on record or that not, not on record that's available to your handlers, where if you start growing a conscience, which isn't something you want in uh, middle management, they can kind of say, ah, 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 remember what we talked about. Be a shame if this got out. The tendrils are all interlinked. You know, this focus on sexualizing children or exposing them to sexualized performances by transgender men. It's always men, it's never women. It's all linked with the fascination that a lot of these elites seem to have with pedophilia. Minor attractive person. I'm sorry, minor attractive. Minor attractive persons. Person. Oh dear. Next week, I'm sure that we're going to have more high fiber politics that we will digest. But again, thank you very, very much for joining me this week. This has been Media Matters with my co-host Martin Gibson. More music yet to come here on RCR and Counterculture. Thanks very much. Have a great week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah. 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 Yeah.